standing in that loneliness, you really do start to figure out for survival purposes, like how it is that you can become your best teammate, right? And I think that that theme is what has controlled so much of my life since I left law school and since I've kind of like moved into my own adult professional spaces. But how is it that you interrogate your own behavior? How is it that you curate your own software so that your operating system is, is one that's reflective of your values? And how is it that you know that you have thought through something to the point where you trust what your conclusion is on stuff? Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. We are back with another two-part interview series. I'm so excited about this one. I've been waiting for quite some time to actually release this conversation with my really close, amazing friend, Kristen Turner. We actually recorded this in the spring or even the winter. So there might be some references to some earlier current events, but the content is still very relevant. Since I met Kristen, she's just been a beautiful light in my life. Like her wisdom and her self-awareness is just so admirable. And we dig into how she got to where she is personally and professionally. Professionally, she's very accomplished. She's done really amazing things. But I think the thing that really makes Kristen stick out is the personal journey that she's taken and the inner work that she's done to get to where she is today. So before we get to this really insightful conversation, I'll tell you a bit more about Kristen. Kristen Turner is a speaker and strategist committed to helping mission-driven individuals and organizations push for social change. Her professional pursuits have all centered on creating more equity, individual agency, and overall well-being in the world and giving shape to the conversations that support that. While known to call professional audibles, Kristen Work generally lives at the intersection of social entrepreneurship, technology, law, and politics. Yes, politics, everyone, it is election season, so remember to get out and vote. And she actually is the deputy director of Women Vote, the super PAC affiliated with Emily's List, the nation's largest resource for pro-choice Democratic women in politics. A self-proclaimed recovering lawyer, Kristen is a graduate of Harvard Law School and holds a BA in political science and Spanish from the University of Southern California. I know you guys are going to love this conversation with Kristen, so let's get to it. Hi, Kristen Turner. Welcome to No Straight Path. I'm just so happy to have you here. Kristen is a really good friend of mine from law school. She is an expert communicator, an amazing soul, and it just always has the best lessons to share. So I'm just really excited to dig into your story today, Kristen. So thank you for being on the podcast. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited that you have, you know, obviously like just kicked this off and really committed to it. It's going to be a gift for so many people. So I'm so excited. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I do want to just really just start from the beginning. Yeah. So yeah, I would love to know just about your childhood. If you could describe yourself, if Kristen and Ashley were childhood best <laughs> friends, it could have been a dream uh, right. for me. <laughs> How would I describe you? What would we be doing? What would we be chatting about? Wow. That's a really good question. Especially because we've talked about so many things. I don't know. It's funny that I don't know if we've ever really gotten into something like this. So childhood Kristen was known for being very animated. That's probably the first thing. Okay. I had like the joke is that I've always had like a very old soul to me. I've always, you know, been able to like talk to the adults, but also like do my own thing. So she was very animated, very precocious, highly verbal, shocking. But I think the thing that defined her and defined me in large part, especially up until I think I really went to grad school, was that she's also just, she was very silly. I've always been known for being like a very goofy person. And I think there were a few years there where that kind of got muted, but just a very silly, happy-go-lucky, super social, like wants to bring everybody in, like, let's all be friends. Yeah, I think not too different from the woman that you ended up meeting, you know, when we went to grad school together. But I think she was just a free spirit. And that's a part of me that I've identified that I love and want to make sure that I protect, you know, as I kind of get older. I love that. I love that. And can you tell us a little bit more just about where you grew up, about your family? Yeah. um, How that shaped your perspective and perhaps your career path and goals of the future? Yeah, totally. So I 
am an only child and I'm also a military kid. So I was actually born in Oakland. And then when I was five, I moved with my mom to DC, which is where she's from. And my entire maternal side of my family is. I think what's so interesting about my story, especially as I've gotten older, is that my parents have a really unique story. So I'm actually the product of my parents' second marriage to each other. And so my parents got, yeah, married, divorced, married again on their 10-year anniversary. And then I actually think they broke up before they had me. And so, but they didn't get divorced until I was like five before we moved back here. And so I grew up very much so with the most awesome co-parents. But I think that having that non-traditional setup where it's like technically I grew up with a single mom, even though I had a different relationship with my dad, I never grew up with like a nuclear family. That was not my experience. It was most of my friends' experience, but not mine. And so I think that it has defined so much as I have like gotten older and like look back on it, but it's kind of, it was non-traditional from the jump. And it was more so like a testament to creating your own reality and doing what works for you. And I ended up in such a healthy context for all of my life that I feel really fortunate and grateful because I know people who, you know, grew up in two parent homes. and That wasn't necessarily like the situation in terms of like the energy that they were around. But I grew up in a context where even though my parents weren't together, they were always hyper-focused on providing me with what our unit was and what the focus of our unit was. And so that is kind of like the basis for so much in my life. Yeah, I love that. And how does that connect to where you are today? I don't want to fast forward too much because I feel like there are so many parts of your story, but that is just an an interesting tidbit. Can you expound upon that? Yeah, I mean, I think growing up, so my parents both have very interesting personalities, like they balance each other really well, but they're very different. But at the end of the day, they're both, my parents are doctors and military, they were military doctors when I was growing up. And so I think they always brought this kind of very empathic nature to everyone around them. And they're healers. I view my parents as healers and they view themselves as healers, right? And so they really have an understanding of what it means to show up and offer someone support or hear what their story is and things like that. And so I think that like, I always grew up with this idea of service, especially growing up in a military family where it's kind of the military ethos is very much so around individual responsibility in pursuit of a collective good. And I think that that really impacted me. I didn't grow up on a military base. Like I grew up kind of in a regular house. And so I think I've always had like a straddled existence, right? It's either like, military kid, but like I grew up kind of as a civilian in a regular home, not on a military base, et cetera. But I also was kind of the most privileged kid in my family. And so it's, I was in private school, whereas all of my cousins were in public school. And so it's always been so interesting to me because I felt like my story is a shade of gray in a world that is really obsessed with this notion of black and white. I grew up always feeling like both and, you know, because it was like, well, like, you know, like I'm a nerd, but I'm also like an artist. I grew up dancing. And so it was kind of, I always had an understanding of the space where things come together Mm -hmm. and the space where you can just be so dynamic. And I think, especially having this outlet of dance, where it was kind of like, it had this discipline piece to it, but I grew up doing ballet and hip hop, which are like not necessarily connected, but for me, they made the most sense ever. And so I think it's just kind of the discipline of dance, but also the idea of playing a role and being free enough to be a character, I think was really liberating in terms of like my desire to show up in a world that felt honest and that was free to be imperfect. I think the last thing that I'll say is that like, I know my parents also, they kind of like drew the lines of what the box was. Like, these are the boundaries, you know what I mean? But within that box, you're free to kind of do whatever you want. So like, I've never felt pressure to be anything or any in particular or do anything in particular you know and I think a lot of especially a lot of children feel that and I think a lot of only children feel that as well I think there are other aspects of being an only child that I feel for sure but they always made me feel empowered to be curious about my life and to know that I had the agency to define it as what I wanted it to be but also with that agency came a responsibility to be able to answer for myself and for my behaviors and so I think that there was just such an intentionality around me as a child and having a voice and being able to have a voice that fed into the way in which I showed up as an adult woman. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So much to unpack there. I love that. Of course it makes sense. I mean, it's amazing. That's, I mean, you are the best communicator, speaker, 
you are that girl, Kristen, <laughs> uh, for me in law school. I just, and now actually, oh, okay. So many things that I actually didn't know. I, I love that. I love Yeah, I was how, thinking as I was saying, I was like, I don't know if I've ever told Ashley. <laughs> I don't know. Because I'm learning so much. So what I love, okay, so much overlap here and differences. One, we're both only children. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love how you were given the space to be dynamic and be the owner of your own path in life and feel like mm-hmm. you had the space to do that. I certainly felt the same way. My parents were very supportive, but everything that I did, it was what I wanted to do. I wanted to understand a little bit more of this fluidity that you had and how that led to your path to law school. Because law school is a place that I think we both can relate to and say that it's a little bit more rigid. It's a, It feels totally. like such totally. a path. So how, were, how did you get there? Why did you go? Yeah. How was it when you got there? <laughs> so no, 100%. I mean, it's funny as you get old, you start to see like the way that your life threads together, especially during the period where you're like, what is going on? None of this makes sense. But I went all through high school, went to college out in California, obviously just like you, I went to SC for undergrad and had just a ball. And then after college, I came home and I was a high school teacher for two years. And so I was a high school Spanish teacher at my former high school. And so, yeah. I didn't know that either. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Do you still speak Spanish? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, like it's definitely not as fluent as I used to be, but I'm still highly proficient. I think it's mostly like if I end up in situations where I haven't had to use certain vocabulary before, then I get stuck. But if it's something like run of the mill, like around the house or, you know, a normal kind of conversational stuff. Yeah. I'm definitely still pretty good, which is handy to say the least. Yeah. So I came back from college and taught at my own high school. And so I think obviously with this narrative of kind of like always kind of growing up in a shade of gray, you know what I mean? Like kind of like being the kid in private school when all my rest of my cousins were in public school. And it's like, I have a headmaster, you know, and I'm in carpool versus kind of like just on the school bus, you know, just like very, a very interesting experience. And so I suddenly was in a situation where I was now effectively the oldest student, youngest teacher in the building, right? Because I now, my colleagues were my former teachers and a lot of my students were the younger siblings of friends of mine. And so it was like this weird, I served as basically this weird intermediary between the administration and the students because I was only really four years, maybe five years older than the, some of the seniors. I looked like a student. Thank God I wasn't wearing a uniform, you know, because people confused me all the time. Yeah. You still look and so like I a think student, I, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's like, think. What ended up happening to your point is that I ended up liaising a lot, you know what I mean? Basically trying to explain one side to the other. And it got me really interested in this idea of, especially in the context of being a language teacher, right? Like it's kind of how communication is so key and the way in which we can communicate in order to bring more people to the table. Like I just became very fascinated by the art of negotiation. And it's funny because a lot of the feedback I would be getting was like, oh, hey, like you're you're a really good communicator, da, 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 da. I just never really paid attention to it. I'm still actually struggling to pay attention to that feedback, but we can get to that later. Right. And so, but I just really love the idea of how you can get other people to have your thought or how do you bring people to consensus? And so as I was thinking about whether or not I wanted to kind of like keep teaching or go to graduate school, I started looking at programs on alternative dispute resolution and negotiation. And that's how I ended up seeing the program of negotiation at Harvard. And so I actually, when I applied to HLS, I applied specifically to do that program. Like I wanted to concentrate on negotiation. And so that's kind of like what led me there. I knew that, you know, I think the critical thinking skills, you know, and all those things you can say in your personal statement for law school are great, but that is kind of what the driver was. That was the focus. And I knew that, you know, I might practice for a couple of years, but I probably end up in business because I like like the idea space. But obviously, you know, once we got there and just, you know, life continued to unfold in its own special way. But that's how I ended up at Harvard. I okay. wanted to do the program on negotiation because I was, I was just really interested in how we kind of like bring people together and create communities that are built off of open communication, curiosity and accountability I and honestly, that. compassion. Yeah. Yeah. And did you ultimately do that work when you got to Harvard? Were you in the negotiation workshop? I did. Yes. I did all the little classes. I did. It was lovely. It was lovely. <laughs> I got, you know, <laughs> I love derailed. I got derailed. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the being derailed. You're not in doing negotiation. I mean, maybe you are doing some type of that work, but it seems so, like. 
Right, exactly. So I think, so my first and second year were relatively straightforward in terms of what the usual kind of like one L and two L experiences at Harvard. Mm-hmm. My third year, I ended up becoming the president of the Black Law Association unexpectedly. And I think like that's the key piece of the story and very reluctantly, like I was a very reluctant leader. I was not interested in assuming that role, but the way that it ended up shaking out is that I ended up getting elected and I was petrified. I think that it took a lot of reflection to think about it, but it was, it's one of those things where like, I'm somebody who loves people, loves people, highly interpersonal. Like I live for like, just the way that you learn about life by learning through learning with other people, but I don't necessarily crave visibility. And I also don't necessarily crave quote unquote power in whatever context, you know, you're, you're talking about it, but being kind of the gatekeeper. That's not really my jam, even though I tend to find myself in those roles, but it's not really kind of like the space where I feel like, oh, like naturally I should be the one who's out here in the face of an organization. Like that should be it. Like, it's just, it's funny because it doesn't, not actually reflective of like how I feel. And so it ended up being really interesting because when I was elected false president, it was during a time that was very frenetic on campus. I think Ashley, you could attest to that. I think what's so interesting about our time in Cambridge is the fact that like we were in Cambridge from the August of Michael Brown through the spring following the Trump inauguration. And so I think that like it's hard to talk about what our experience was in that space without understanding exactly when we were there. Right. And so it's kind of the dissonance between what was going on socially, Black Lives Matter, a lot more kind of social demand that we have more like racial and social justice nuance to our conversations. And then you also are living in a context where it's like Cambridge is pretty much the pinnacle of white patriarchal exceptionalism. Right. And I think that it's tough to bridge those two spaces, especially if one of the spaces isn't necessarily as open to being nimble, right? And so my charge was kind of trying to kind of keep the two, not even the two groups, because there's multiple, multiple different groups, just try to keep everybody somehow together, you know, when it felt like in terms of tension, it was starting to rip at the seams, you know? And so like my thought was like, I just want to try as hard as we can to keep people together, even if we're not in agreement, we don't have to be in agreement, you know what I mean? But we have to stay at the table. My philosophy was we we have to stay at the table. And so interestingly enough, I got like the most in-depth clinical experience on what it's like to negotiate across the table, right? Like that was like, I had like basically a year long clinical. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, now that I'm, I'm thinking back, you're bringing me back to that time and you're right. And I don't think I appreciated the significance of that period until I started reading Derricka Purnell, both of our mm-hmm. friends' um, book, Becoming Abolitionist, and she was going back to this time period. And we were just in such a politically active time. And so I remember those tensions because I would define myself as someone who is liberal. Mm-hmm. But when I got to law school, there were several times where I felt like I was perhaps moderate. Yeah. And I felt bad about it. And yeah. I have all these close, amazing activist friends yeah. and I have other friends who are a bit more silent and were maybe yeah. already moderates coming in. And so we couldn't all agree, but we were all black students and we all cared about black life. But we yeah. also cared. Some people cared more about fighting in the streets and going and marching and other people cared about changing things within the system. And they cared about perhaps getting the best grades so they can go off and get in a position within the system to change it from within. Other yeah. people are saying, burn down the system. We are having intense conversations. And Kristen and Turner is at the head <laughs> of this group, <laughs> trying to keep us together and keep harmony and peace. And then we're also trying to go out into the community and go into Boston. I was head of the community service group for the Black Law yeah. Association. And we're trying to help the kids there who are getting stopped by the police during that time where there's a heightened, there's like a heightened sense of fear because of police brutality. Like there was just so much weight. I mean, and for you to be directing us and be the lead, and I think you did an excellent job. I just want you to know that. I'm not sure if I ever told you that, but we really needed people like you because other people like me in the background, I was just... I was studying, go to a meeting, study. All right, I'll come to this meeting, Christine. Yes, okay, I'll go to this protest for like five minutes. Yes, I'll go. I'll join this critical race theory class. Yeah. It was a lot. There was a lot going on. And it's hard not to respect a lot of different viewpoints. You know, and I think for me, it was a really huge lesson in A, 
I had probably some of the most painful experiences I've had during that one year. Mm. Experiences that it took me a few years after to really kind of work through and internalize and then ultimately be grateful for. But I think there are so many things that came out of my tenure as BALSA president personally, right? So it's like, I would never, ever trade it. I don't know if I would want to do it again per se, but I can absolutely say that it was a necessary piece of whatever my story is. I can understand why it was a chapter there because I think one, leadership is really interesting because it changes you, right? Or I don't know if it really changes you, but to that Michelle Obama kind of quote, it's like, it reveals who you are. Like you really do have to start making decisions about who you are. It becomes key in order to execute and lead, right? Because I think it's one of those things where like you're such you're in such a unique situation that you really have to decide what your voice is, what your position is. And I don't know, even in law school as just a law student, I don't know if everyday people are really forced to do that. Like if you have a a higher ability to hide behind, you know, either flowery language or somebody else being more vocal. But like when you're in leadership, like you really do have to know where you come out because the reality is if you do something or take a position that isn't actually reflective of how you feel, it's a miserable space. I've experienced that now, you know what I mean? Where it's like, that's not really how I feel. And then I think also just trying to think about what your identity is, you know, you as the person versus you as the leader. And then also reacting to the fact that a lot of your friends might not be able to differentiate between the two anymore. And so I think being a leader in a space where you are inherently mixing private and professional was just like such a unique learning curve for me that like changed a lot about how my brain is set up, right? The one thing that came out of that year that I always talk about is that leadership is lonely. That's what I learned. It's extremely lonely. And especially for somebody who I believe ultimately at the end of the day, like was elected based on the caliber of my individual interpersonal relationships. That was a tough space to be in where it was kind of feeling like even my closest friends couldn't see me different than me as Balsa president. So that was kind of tough. But in standing in that loneliness, you really do start to figure out for survival purposes, like how it is that you can become your best teammate, right? And I think that that theme is what has controlled so much of my life since I left law school and since I've kind of like moved into my own adult professional spaces. But how is it that you interrogate your own behavior? How is it that you curate your own software so that your operating system is is one that's reflective of your values? And how is it that you know that you have thought through something to the point where you trust what your conclusion is on stuff? And I think that that, especially in the context of a legal education, was really helpful. And that's allowed me to step into my own voice and kind of stand in it in a way that is still definitely evolving, but it's in a way that I deeply, deeply, deeply appreciate. Wow. I love that. Okay. A lot to unpack there too. <laughs> Listen, this might be two parts. This, this podcast <laughs> might have to be two parts oh, yeah. with Kristen because there's just, there's always so much depth in our conversations and the way that you articulate your experiences that I think it's so important that people hear your voice. And so I think that's why you're pushed into these leadership positions. And so it sounds like it was so challenging. So happy that you came out on the other side, even stronger. (laughs) Definitely. Could you describe a specific instance of a leadership instance that you went through during that time where you came into your own voice? If it happened, I'm not sure if it did. So there was one night... I don't know if I came into my voice fully, you know, I think that's still like a thing that I'm working on, right? I think the night that I remember stepping into my voice as a leader, you know, or like just accepting that regardless of the situation, like this is the situation I was in, I was going to have to kind of like work the problem was the fall of 3L. And I spoke to Balsa, we were like in a, we were in a period that was, there's a lot of infighting. We were just kind of like, you know, whatever. It was like September, October. So still early on, but we couldn't quite catch our stride. And I remember we had one meeting and we'd had like an e-board meeting with the kind of like, you know, your, your internal vice president, external vice president, secretary, treasurer. We'd had like kind of like a, an officer's meeting. That's what they're called, where they were like, listen, it's tough right now. Like it's, there's a lot of friction in the group, you know? And so I don't know how we're going to fix it. And so I remember going to the larger body meeting the general body meeting. And at the end of it, I just kind of spoke from my heart. I remember saying at the end of the day, dues are paid at the end of the day, like the preseason is over, like this is the team, right? And so we need to think about what it means to be us in this moment here. And 
and understanding that, you know, how uniquely situated we are to be here. And it's not like what I wasn't trying to say is like, just be grateful. I'm not saying that. You know what I mean? Like, I think what I communicated that night was there are very practical realities involved with being who we are, where we are in this moment. And none of that is going to be able to be cut cleanly. It's complicated just by virtue of, of what it is. However, at the end of the day, like whether you believe in God or other, we are all here for whatever reason. And this moment is going to require us to find the best parts of ourselves to meet the challenges that, that lie ahead. And I, I just remember and saying like, I love you guys. You know what I mean? We're not going to agree. Like there's just no world where we all agree. It's just, that's not what it is. But at the end of the day, like there's nobody else here who knows what it's like to be here as us. Right. And that requires a certain level of commitment to coming back to the table and having the argument. Then I remember that night where I was like, okay, I'm going to do this, even though I'm very reluctant about it. But like, if this is a situation, I'm going to step into it. And I'm going to do my best for this year. And so that was one night. I just, that's so amazing. <laughs> I no, because it's, it's true. It was like Balsa it was like a family, right? Mm-hmm. We're not always going to get along, but we do in the end have this shared goal. And it was a very important time for us. Everybody was looking to us at that time. Yeah, exactly. For statements regarding various unfortunate like police killings, for totally. statements regarding activism, for the like, cross-cultural statements. We had to work with totally. all the different, I mean, organizations. Exactly. And it's Harvard Law School, Black mm-hmm. Law Students Association, yeah. right? So we yeah. are, I believe, the second biggest population of Black law students in mm-hmm. the nation. I think Howard's number one, at least at the yeah. time. Part mm-hmm. of the reason why I went to HLS because yeah. it yeah. was amazing. And now after the fact, I look back, my closest relationships come from Balsa. Yeah. My husband was in Balsa with yeah. me. It was such a meaningful part of my experience and we needed people like you to step up and take the lead. And so I'm just forever grateful for that. And I am just ne- just going back to that now. I'm just like, wow, like I was in a little bit of a daze, <laughs> just going through the motions, <laughs> not really understanding everything that was going on behind the scenes and what you had to do to keep us together and to keep the organization moving forward. So I just appreciate you sharing that with us. No, thank you. I, I appreciate being able to share it. It was a part of the story that I'm still so grateful for, for sure, despite the fact that I walked out a little bit bruised. But for that experience, I would not have been able to make a lot of the decisions that have greatly impacted my life since then. Yeah. And inform kind of like what my squiggle has looked like. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the squiggle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What was so the next step in Kristen's journey? The next step. Oh my gosh. So then the next step I think was us figuring out what we're going to do post post law school, which the way I just phrased it made it seem like it was unclear. But the reality is when you're in law school, basically you find out what you're doing after your first year and you know what job you're going to work. And it's all pretty much very regimented, very set in stone. Like it's a wheel that spins. I was basically set to go work at a firm in San Francisco and do tech M&A, corporate law, business deals, stuff like that. And in that experience as BALSA president, I basically also had to have some very candid conversations with myself about work, right? And I think once you start being honest with yourself in one regard, it kind of bleeds into everything else, right? It's kind of hard to continue to lie to yourself. And so long story short is I started to feel very anxious and unsettled about what the next block of my life looked like. It's hard to describe and it's funny that like you're making me do it now. So I know I'm going to like do it imperfectly, but it was almost like, have you ever been in, in an apartment building or something where like the fire alarm is super sensitive? Yes. That is, okay. that is my apartment building. Okay. I've gotten better great. with it over the years, but. <laughs> great, great, great. And you know how sometimes if it goes off frequently, I've had this happen in some of my apartments previously where it's like, if the alarm goes off regularly, like there are some times you're like, you know, fire. I'm not going out like, I, you know, but then you're like, the screeching is just so bad that I have to leave, even though it's like, I know there's not a fire. That's how I felt. It was one of those things where it was, there's an alarm going off mm. internally that I cannot get to go off. And it seems like only a certain set of decisions is going to get it to shut off. And it's like, I would let it stay on if it wasn't blaring out my eardrum, you know? Yeah. And so long, yeah. And that's like how I started to feel 
regularly. The more conversation it came around, like, oh, when does work start for you and all this stuff, like I just became so very lost in it where it suddenly felt like the life I was about to live wasn't mine. There was nothing about it that felt like me. It just felt like a life, A, not mine, right? And so I went through a deep period of psychosis. Basically, I started working through things in my head in real time all the time because I was just so confused. Like, I was like, how could you not want this template? How, you know? And so I was like, am I a crazy person in a sane world or a sane person in a crazy world? You know? And then I started thinking, which one is it? And then I'm like, you're here at Harvard Law School. What is the currency here? It's not money, right? Because people here are very rich. They're very well off. You know, not everyone, obviously. You know what I mean? But like, they're also extremely privileged people. It's no question it's Harvard Law School, right? What is the currency here if money isn't actually the commodity? And so I started thinking about that. I was chewing on that question for a really long time. And I was like, what is the part of the brand that I'm really here working for and taking on all this debt for? And I came to this conclusion that it was like, it's optionality, right? It's the ability to choose. Like that is what, for me, Harvard Law School affords you. And in my mind, anybody, regardless of like what kind of money you're coming from. But like, if that's the case, I couldn't figure out why I suddenly felt so trapped and why I felt like I couldn't even conceive of any other idea of my life beyond what I was told was next. And it scared me. I worried because I think a lot of us in that situation, like we're carrying the hopes and the expectations of so many other people beyond just us, because like a lot of us play that role. We're the most privileged person in their family. You know what I mean? And so I think to think about that, especially through the lens of a black woman, there's this tension between what is my responsibility to others? But then also the question that I haven't really asked myself is what is my responsibility to myself? And it started to really mess with me. You can't walk through the halls of Harvard Law School as a Black woman and not understand that, like, you are probably not, you're supposed to be there because you've earned it, but, like, you weren't ever fully meant to be there, right? Like, at least not in the origin story of Harvard Law School, right? And so, for me, it was, wow, like, there are so many women in this country, women that I am related to, you know what I mean? But in this country, and there are so many women, especially in this world, who will never know a space between childhood and motherhood. And yet here I am, a full-blown adult at the best school at one of the best universities in the world. And I basically, forgive my little puppy that's barking, I basically am at the high level of legitimacy that I'll have, you know, that I've had ever in my life, but also the least amount of responsibility because it's like, I don't have children. I don't have a spouse. I don't have a mortgage, but what am I supposed to do with this space? My current space, a single woman who is educated without children, you know what I mean? Pre 30 years old lives outside the imagination of a lot of women in this country and in the world, like my current circumstances, more than a lot of women could imagine. And so like, what is my responsibility to them in terms of like experiencing what they might not ever have the opportunity to. And I think it was just the idea that you could just start making decisions in real time that reflect some notion of freedom, right? I was like, you know what? Yeah. And so I think that I got to a point where I was like, listen, I know that something isn't right. And right now, like I have the license to basically make these decisions, but it's not something that you do. Like you don't decline your firm job. You know what I mean? Like once you've decided that you're doing the corporate route at Harvard or even really in law school, it's kind of like you don't turn that down. But I did. I got the little extension for like how long you could take to deliberate and then ran the clock. And then by virtue of just running the clock, I knew it wasn't something that I wanted to do. But I think what scared me so badly was that I could I didn't have a vision for the alternative, right? It was just not this. And that's petrifying because we're just so conditioned to want the answers and like want to know exactly what we're going to do and what the full five-year plan is. And that just wasn't the case. It was just more so I feel like I need to cast a survival vote because for some reason, what I'm about to embark on doesn't feel like the path to my freedom or me thriving or me feeling most like myself, but I couldn't tell you like what I wanted to do in the alternative. And it's like, I've already like invested all this money and all this time, you know, whatever. But I think what I learned from that moment is that sometimes you're really not going to have the entire playbook, but you do know what the next play is, despite how terrifying it is. And so for me, it was, I just had to accept that going to at least the firm that I was going to go to was not for me. And it was not the route 
of most freedom and happiness. And so I declined and I actually ended up graduating without a job. And I decided I didn't want to try to even figure out what I wanted to do because I just needed to take space and just give my brain basically some space, right? Okay. Wow. There's just so, that's so amazing. We just need people to just kind of take that in. No, <laughs> For no. For you to do that and to have that internal compass tell you something like that so early. We're starting to see people reevaluate their careers now. I'm noticing some of my friends who are yeah, yeah. practicing law, but you saw this vision. You didn't know what it would look like, but you know, this isn't right. And I love mm. the analogy that you provided regarding the alarm clock. So relatable. I'm not alarm clock, the fire alarm. Yeah. So relatable. And do you think that that's tied to the childhood that you had, how you talked about being dynamic and being in gray, both, I think you, you might've said gray, mm-hmm. as well as the leadership experience where you, you felt that loneliness, but you still learned so much. And so you weren't necessarily afraid of continuing on that journey. Totally. I think it's both, right? Like I think my childhood, my upbringing, especially like, you know, in the arts and all those things, like it created this freedom, right? Like I was just a very free spirit. And so like to know what that feels like is hard to replicate. You just know when you're in it. You like, you just know when you're in that groove. And in all honesty, like my time in Cambridge muted a lot of that in my personality, which I still don't love. But I think again, you know, it's just kind of like one of the, one of the phases of my life, right? Where I felt like, you know, you just, you button up more. Cambridge buttons you up a little bit. And especially going to like, you're from Los Angeles, you know what I mean? Going to school in LA, going to school at a school like USC was just very much so, it was a very gregarious context, you know, where like everything's fun, but you can also be super smart, but it's like, you know, we're going to lay out. Everything's a party. (laughs) That's so funny that you say that because when I went to Stanford and I met all these people from the East Coast, I came with like my ripped jeans, one of my best friends, she went to prep school on the East Coast. And she looks at me and she's like, are you going to get your jeans tailored? Where's your J. Crew shirt? I'm like, what? I'm from exactly. LA. Like, I'm free, you know, so I, I agree with that. I do think you button up more when you go to these different institutions, especially the East Coast. It was such a culture shock totally. for me. Totally. And the fact that you said you were silly growing up, that was so interesting because I do agree that that was muted during law school. And I started to learn your silly side. After life. after so Cambridge yeah. really muted me, you know what I mean. And I think, granted, I'm sure it muted a lot of people in different ways. But for me, that's where I, that's how I notice it. Because like my friends from home would be like, "Are you kidding me? She's like the silliest person you've ever met in your life." Like I'm just goofy. Like that is my jam. I love to laugh. But like Cambridge, really, really, I don't know. It's more of a box that everybody's like kind of like trying to fit into because it's encouraged. In all honesty. You know, but also having the duality of like the East Coast and the West Coast experiences, whether that's like being born in Oakland, raised in D.C. and then going to college in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It's just a very and especially a city like D.C., which when I was growing up, was just predominantly black. You know, and you could see the entire spectrum of the black experience from true poverty that is informed by social dynamics that are unfair all the way through black affluence in a way that isn't necessarily represented in every other major city in the same concentration. So like, I grew up feeling like it was a very round experience, but to answer your question, so it was definitely like the childhood piece of it where I was like, I I was just such a free spirit. And then also it forced me to be able to interrogate my own behavior and my own thoughts in a way where it was like, you need to learn how to be your best teammate. That's it. And so I think that like the theme of all of those things was the fact that even though Balsa was a somewhat painful experience for me. It was highly fulfilling in the sense that it helped bring me back to myself, right? And I think that that is the thing that I find with so many people is that, you know, as you kind of are running these rat races and as you're on these hamster wheels and as you're in these institutions or at these companies that have very clearly defined cultures that expect you to assimilate to them, the power in that is that it disconnects you from yourself and there's no conversation about how to maintain that relationship. And that is my issue. I think that, you know what I mean? Like, and I think that that is why people find themselves kind of spiraling when they're trying to make these life decisions and make these life adjustments because they don't necessarily feel empowered, A, to take agency over their life, but B, they don't have that connection to themselves to know the information they're receiving from their gut is the information they need to lean on. And so I think that is kind of why I'm so grateful for that time and that window. I love that. I feel like I say I love that so much. And I was trying (laughs) to think of a different way to express my feelings about the things that you say, but I just love it. And so it's true. It is so exactly. It's so true. I would love to move next really to that period now where you are interrogating 
your thoughts, figuring out what's next. So you just graduated from Harvard Law yeah. School and you don't have a job. Tell us about that time. Yeah, no, for sure. So come April, basically I'd like decided, like I was like, oh, I'd poked around and thought that maybe I'll just do something else immediately and maybe I'll just start working. We might have to do a part two because I have a lot of really weird experiences. But basically <laughs> I had what I would call, it wasn't really like a blind date, but it was like a blind date lunch with Governor Deval Patrick while I was Balsa president. And basically Dean, one of the Dean of Harvard Law School sent me an email saying, hey, you need to talk to a friend of mine meet him at his office. This is the address on this day, blah, 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 blah. And so I went and it was Governor Patrick. And so it was crazy because I basically tell him like, hey, like, I don't know if I should do this and da, 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 da. And what I will say is prior to that meeting, the thing that kind of tipped me off that I was kind of going in the right direction is that like, as I was explaining that, I was like, I don't really know if I like it. Like all of my friends were like, oh girl, just take the money. You know what I mean? Take the money, do it for a little bit. You'd be all right. You know, da, 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 whatever. But it was the only decision in my life where my mentors actually understood me more than my peers. Cause typically I feel like you're trying to sell your mentors on something like this is the future. Trust us. And they're like, eh. but it was the first time in my life where my peers were like, no, definitely don't do that. And my mentors were like, if you even suspect that this is not for you, you need to follow that. 100%, 100% do not do it. Like listen to us when we say it. And it was just so interesting because I think there was just a strain of perspective that I knew to trust. You know what I mean? Because people said it, whether it was Professor Wilkins or Dimeno or whoever the case may be, they were just like, no, 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 no. Life has shown us that we need to give you this information. And so I told Governor Patrick the whole story and da, 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 da. And I was like, and if say, I have sorry, to- the whole story- what do oh, you yeah, mean? I was just trying uh, to like gloss over stuff. Oh. <laughs> You're like, like, basically how like I was really interested in kind of like social entrepreneurship and big ideas and, you know, how I didn't know if going the regular route was for me, but I felt kind of crazy and all those things, you know, and like, it's hard when you kind of have not a vision, but it's almost sometimes people carry the emotional experience of what the dream for their life is without actually having a vision to think about in their mind, if that makes sense. So sometimes you can feel that there's more for your life, even if you can't see it. Key and I were talking about that, you know, and I was like, so maybe I'll just get another job. And if that's the case, like whatever, like I'll start working right after I graduate. Like even if it's the day after I graduate, like I'll just do that because I was still very much so trained to like for the grind. And he sat there and he looked at me and he said, yeah, the one thing you need to walk out here knowing is that this timeline that you bought into is completely made up. He's like, time is what you make of it. Like, you don't have to do anything on any timeline. All timelines are fake and they are completely creative. And for some reason, when he said it to me, it just opened up my brain. And so I walked out of that meeting like, I'm not going to keep looking for a job right now. I'm going to enjoy where I am right now, which is the last, what, six, seven weeks of my final year at Harvard Law School. You know what I mean? Which is a time that like I'll always remember. And then I'm going to take the summer to just regroup. And then come fall, I'll like, you know, basically be back on the grid. And I told all my mentors, like, hey, I'm going to re-up come September. And that's what I did. I took a summer. I came home. I moved, you know, we graduated. We came home. And I took a summer to remember who I was before Harvard. I hung out with my family. I saw cousins. And it was funny because I had a cousin who's like a fake cousin. But I know he was really community does. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But he was really, he doesn't know it, but he was really integral because I came home for like a winter break our last year of law school. And I went to like another cousin's school play and he was there. And I was like, oh, I went to go say hello. And they were like, no, this is like little Cameron. Cameron was born the summer I left for college. And so it was just so crazy seeing what 10 years looks like in the context of a person. And I realized like, wow, I haven't really been home that much. Like I've been in college and then I've been away at law school. And then I've just kind of been popping around doing my like fun, carefree, a little bit of hot girl years, you know, whatever, you know. And so it was just kind of like, wow, I've spent a lot of time not here. And this is the place that I most remember myself. So I came home and I just kind of got back to the basics of who I used to be when I felt like most myself. And that really, really helped, which is a privilege, first of all, because not everybody can just go back to whether it's a city, whether it's a home, whether it's a community, like that's not always the case for everybody. But I think in that I've learned that there have been aspects of my life that have been a privilege that we don't often talk about, even just having like a set community. And so I came back to my community and I was just like, you know what, I need to get back to the basics and just remember who I am. And so that's what I did that summer. And I remembered what I cared about, what my spiritual leanings were, what my philosophy of how I wanted to show up in my life was going to be. That is so wonderful. Can you 
tell us a little bit more, tell me a little bit more. And I guess yeah. I'm so it isn't us. Just <laughs> about what that looked like for you when you said come back to myself. What did that look like? I think what happens a lot in the black community, especially like when you're dealing with the pressures of like what black quote unquote excellence looks like. I had to figure out what goals and what expectations were mine or which of those were just inherited from the world around me. And that took a lot of time because I think you just have to just even working to identify which beliefs aren't yours is just super hard, right? And so for me, it was just a lot of time really not only hanging out with my family, but sometimes just hanging out with myself which I don't think we all get a chance to do. And I think it can be frightening in a lot of ways because it ends up begging a lot of questions that quite frankly, I don't know if we always have the tools to answer. And I think it's so funny because like now, you know, obviously fast forwarding, like to like think about the world that we're living in now, but half the reason why we're in this kind of socio-political context where we can't really come to the table, we can't really admit our faults and things like that is because we're not even really socialized or conditioned to have those conversations with ourselves as individuals. And so I think it was just this reorientation of what my rubric for my life needed to be and how I wanted to kind of exercise that in terms of the way I show up with the people around me. And so that's what it looked like. It looked like, you know, me sitting on my deck in my backyard, journaling or just thinking really, truly just taking yourself down to the studs. Yeah. Yeah. So much of what you just said, I can just really relate to. And Part of the reason why I wanted to have this podcast is because I wanted to humanize success. I mean, that's the Mm -hmm. big reason of of it is just to show everyone that we are all humans and we all go through these different stages in life. And I think it's the weight that Black women carry when we succeed. And I'm Mm -hmm. saying the listeners can't see like succeed in quotes. It's It's really, really heavy. When I would go back home, everybody was so proud of me. Mm-hmm. And when you go into your law firm, the assistants and other, the IT mm-hmm. guys, all the other yeah. folks there are rooting you on. Exactly. And you walk into these rooms where you're the only black woman and you're meeting with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, working with partners. It is a privilege, mm-hmm. but it is heavy. Heavy. And you feel like you have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And we're not we're all human. And so it's just when you're able to start to just release yourself from those expectations, mm-hmm. I think you can really start to be your truest self. And so totally. even at my firm now, I feel like myself mm-hmm. and I'm so happy, but I had to take that agency. I had yeah. to explain to people what was important to me and other black associates at the firm. I had to, you know, you can't always show up completely as yourself in work in a corporate environment. I think that that's just, I know that they try to say that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. like, I'm not, I'm not going to be in the client meeting and like fall into my, ain't nobody this, or, you know, fall into my normal vernacular <laughs> that I might say with my friends. I'm not calling people sis. I'm not <laughs> right, right, right. certain things, but I know I'm, I'm going no, a I, little bit of a speech and I know I said, we are cutting our time, but we're, we're going to have to have a okay, part we're two. We're going to do a part two. I we're think it's very two. obvious. We're definitely yeah. doing a part two. It's winter time. You have, but you know where to find me. Yeah. You know, and it's like, it, and that's my thing. Like, I'm like, my experience though, it's like unique in terms of the details, you know what I mean? In terms of the feelings and the challenges of just trying to figure out what it means to step up to your own life and live it are common to everybody. And so like, to your point, you know, in terms of thinking about what success is and it's like, you know, for a long time, for us, success was the degree, the job, the title, the travel, the gram. And now I'm in a place in my life coming out of this experience, you know, especially in the last five years since we've left law school. And it's where it's like success to me is having my life reflect an understanding of self, whether that's the jobs I take, whether that's the home I live in, whether that's whether I'm up early or late in the afternoon, you know, late in the evening or early in the morning, whether it's like what I eat, what my diet is, whatever the case may be, it's about creating a life that reflects how I know myself to be and what works well for me so that I can show up and actually experience the surprises that life has in store. Oh, okay. I'm trying not to say I love that, but I love that as well. (laughs) I completely, I love that definition. I agree to so many levels. And I think that as you get 
more senior or you figure out, you know, depending on where you are, because there's more flexibility in certain jobs, but like ultimately you are, I think you might've said this, like you are the agent of your own life. You, you have agency, you Mm -hmm. are, you need to show up in the way that is most true to you. Mm -hmm. And I am really starting to do that in my work now. It took me a little Mm -hmm. bit of time, but I am moving forward with certain initiatives at my firm and I am taking the time that I need. I am journaling. I work. Mm-hmm. I never, never say no to my workout. Like mm-hmm. that is just embedded in what I do. I don't. If someone can be emailing me, but if I'm in my workout, I have to finish. My right. Workout. Like, right. My health right. and wellness is the most important thing to me. Totally. My body, keeping my body healthy, and so being able to take that control of your life and have it reflect who you are as a human. That definition of success is so profound and important. This is probably. A great, a natural, a natural yeah, I think it's a natural <laughs> stopping point because you just, you let's all sit with this, with Kristen Turner's definition of success. Yeah. And go back, go interrogate your lives right now. <laughs> go, with yourself. go journal, go figure out how okay. you want to show up in this world, how you want to yeah. be. And let's simmer on that. Totally. <laughs> it is encouraged. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Ashley. Thank you so much for sharing, Kristen. Seriously, you've given me so much to think about as always. And I just love your heart. I love your spirit. And I love how it is reflected in your speech. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share this episode with friends and family. And if you like what you hear, please go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate the show. It helps other listeners find No Straight Path. Let's spread the message, everyone, and make sure that millennials feel less alone. There's no straight path in your career and life, and that's okay. It's honestly what makes the journey exciting. So let's get inspired together. I hope you have a great week.